And as you um, just kind of drop into a prayerful place, I want to encourage you to just kind of offer your own prayer to God tonight. And um, there's this, uh, while you're kind of there in that spot, there's this verse in John chapter 3 that's just been uh, ringing in my mind and my heart all week. It's this verse that says that Jesus gives the Spirit of God without measure. Maybe you're here tonight and you just need a fresh encounter with the living God and a fresh filling of the Spirit of God. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you Take a moment and just say, Holy Spirit, would you, would you meet with me tonight? And then would you take a second and just pray for me, pray that what we talk about tonight makes sense. Our Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, thank you that you give the Spirit of God without measure. Thank you that you're not stingy with your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we want you tonight. We ask that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. We ask that you would form us and that you would shape us after the pattern of Jesus. Jesus, we ask that you would bear witness of the Father, that we would glorify him and come under him and be, be submitted to him in every way that is right and good as children of God. We offer this prayer in the name of Jesus, and we all agreed and said, amen, amen. Well, tonight we are uh, we're caught up in the second week of a series we started last week called Forgotten Father, and here's what we're trying to do in this series. Um, thinking about our church backgrounds, if you've had a background in church, or maybe even just sort of Bible Belt culture, you probably have some framework of God the Son, right? Jesus Christ. The things that he's done for us, accomplished in his death and resurrection, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead for our salvation. You probably have some framework for the person and work of Jesus. You also probably have some framework for God the Holy Spirit, right? The fact that um, in this Christian life we're not doing it in our own power, but that Jesus has poured out his spirit on us to guide us into all truth, Scripture says, to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, to, to also empower us for mission and obedience, to give us gifts uh, to, to, to edify one another in the common good of the church, right? We have a framework for God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But I don't know that we're as savvy around what, what it is to confess God as Father, right? When we think about our faith, it's bringing us into the Trinitarian reality of our faith that we confess a triune God. He is one God, no doubt, not three gods, one God, but the scripture reveals him as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're not as proficient or savvy around who is God the Father and what's happening with that. That's what we're trying to unfold in this series, Forgotten Father. And so tonight we're gonna jump in, and I wanna jump in with this quote from John Calvin. So John Calvin, if you're not familiar, was a guy in the 1500s uh, who was a reformer in the church. The Catholic church had gone awry in some ways, and he, along with several others, was trying to bring back faithfulness to Jesus, the scriptures, and what it looks like to preach the gospel. And when he was 26 years old, he wrote this work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. 
It's a book that was released in 1536 at the church across the globe, still consults today for help in understanding the Christian life, right? So he's 26 years old, writes this epic work on doctrine and theology, and he opens that work with this quote, and it really helps us where we're headed tonight. It'll be on the screens. It says, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed as true and solid, so what he's saying is anything about our knowledge or wisdom in the world that's solid and good, that can be trusted and firm, anything of that, it's got to consist entirely of two parts. Part one, the knowledge of God. Part two, the knowledge of ourselves. And he argues these things are so connected together by many ties, they're so interwoven, he says it's not easy to determine which of the two precedes or gives birth to the other. What Calvin goes on to argue is that if you're going to really know God, you're going to come into contact with the living God, then it's going to force you and push you to really deal with yourself, right? And if you're going to really know yourself, those parts of your story that, are, um, that maybe sometimes you'd rather leave off to really be aware of what's self-aware and healthy in a way emotionally, if you're going to be self-aware, then it's also going to push you to deal with God, the two spiral together, knowing God, knowing self, knowing self, knowing God. And what's interesting about God is that he has this way, there's parts of our story that we'd rather not deal with at times. There's parts of our past and there's parts of our histories that we'd rather just kind of leave detached and back there somewhere locked away. But God has this way of actually needling us and forcing us to deal with ourselves in ways that sometimes we'd rather leave off or just leave behind. So so here's an example from my life. Uh, This last week, I had to go to the car dealership and get a new key for my car. And so I brought my information there so they would know I wasn't trying to steal a car and just get a random key made for some car I found. I gave them my title and my identification, and they put my number into, my system, into their system. And up populates all these names, and they're, of course, in alphabetical order. And so the guy at the customer service desk calls out a name that showed up right next to mine. He thought it was my name, but then he quickly realized his mistake. But the name he called out was the name of my adoptive father, that bailed on my mom and I when I was 17 years old. We came home to a half-empty house, and I haven't heard his name said. I haven't heard his name spoken in over 14 years. I was 17 then. I'm 37 now. It was 20 years ago. Like, my life has moved on. I've grown up. I've got a family of my own. I've got a different circle of friends. There's people that are close to me. I share that part of my story with. It's really painful and dark. But even then, I don't share his name because they don't have any context for who he is. I just kind of share that part of my story. And then all of a sudden, I'm at the car dealership this last week, and I hear his name mentioned. And it was named, he was named like in reference to me. I haven't heard his name in 14 years. And so that brought up a really painful part of my story. And so that's all the stuff that's swirling in my heart and in my mind this week as I'm trying to prepare a sermon on the heart of God the Father, right? And it was an interesting moment because I just look back at the customer service person and I go, oh, huh, same, so same spelling as my name? And the guy's like, yeah. And so I'm just thinking, I'm just trying to pass this moment so we don't enter into therapy with the customer service person. I'm like, hey, Dad, I got, some, I got some dad wounds. Can you help me with that? And he's, I'm just trying to give you a key, bro. Like, that's all I'm trying to, you know? But isn't this an example of what Calvin is trying to talk about? To to, to know God is going to force you to deal with yourself and your story. And the other way around is also true. So you think about all of us in the room, regardless of your stories, and the fatherhood of God. All of us have experiences with earthly fathers. Some of them are good. Some of them are painful and bad. 
And those experiences with earthly fathers, don't they push you to the fatherhood of God? And then also to deal with the fatherhood of God, doesn't it push you back to deal with your father wounds? And so again, today is all about the fatherhood of God. And one of the things I just want to say as we jump into the text, this conversation is actually really important for us because what's happening is that you and I live in an information age, right, where empirical data wins the day. If you're going to bring to me a new argument, if you're going to try to persuade me into something new that I don't currently take up, you're going to have to show your homework. You're going to have to show the facts. You're going to have to prove to me why your way of seeing the world or what you're trying to argue for is worth it or else I'm not going to believe you. We live in an information age. And so that's actually why a lot of us, when it comes to sharing our faith with a non-believer or when it comes to dealing with skepticism that we feel, a lot of times we reach for apologetics. We reach for philosophy and logic and reasoning because we think, if I can just prove that God exists or if I can just help my own unbelief in areas through logic and reasoning, then I'll be okay. But here's what I'd actually contend. I'd actually contend that you might be able to help yourself in areas of doubt, and you might be able to prove to someone who doesn't believe in God that he exists through logic and reasoning and apologetics, but that doesn't mean the bigger question will necessarily be answered. The bigger question, more than God exists, is do you like the God that you believe in? Do you like him? See, I would actually argue that one of the reasons people don't believe in God in our day is not because they don't believe he exists. That's part of it. A lot of the reason people reject God is they don't like the God they've imagined. On the other side of the argument, they just don't like who he is. And so then they go to the place, because I don't like him, he doesn't exist, or he can't exist, or I don't even care about the conversation altogether, I just don't like him. And so when we get to the conversation around the heart of the Father, the substance of the Father, the texture of what he's like, This itself is actually a really important conversation for our own father wounds, for our own way of living in the world. This itself is an apologetic. This is a defense. What is God like, his heart? Because whether or not you believe in God, whether or not you actually care about God, if I can get you to see a measure of his heart, then maybe you'll start asking some different questions. So this leads us to our passage in John 14. I want to try to get after two questions tonight. The first question is this, what is Jesus trying to show us about the Father? What is Jesus trying to show us about the Father? That's the knowledge of God that Calvin was talking about, and it leads us to a second question. This is kind of the map for tonight. The second question is, so what does that mean for us? It's the knowledge of self. So these are kind of be the, the, the map for our conversation. Let's jump into the first question. What is Jesus trying to show us about the Father? So in John chapter 14, where you've got the scripture opened, Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples. It's the last conversation that he's going to have before he goes to the cross. And so this last conversation is actually a a broader picture that spans from John chapter 13 all the way to John chapter 17. And it's some of the most beautiful and tender words we have in all of scripture from, from Jesus. And all through the life and ministry of Jesus, he's been telling his disciples, like, hey, this is going to come to a, I'm going to have a suffering coming for me. I'm going to die. I'm going to go and and, and be put to death at the hands of sinful men. And they keep going, what are you talking about? You're the the savior of the world. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. You're not going to, you're going to sit on the throne of your grandfather David forever. You're not going to die. They're so confused. But eventually they go, he keeps talking about it. Maybe, maybe he's telling the truth. And so in John 14, they finally believe him, and they start to freak out a bit. And so then Jesus starts in, in John chapter 14, we read it a moment ago, he says, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
It's all going to be okay. Here's what's going to happen. I'm actually going to go to my father's house. And there's many rooms there in my father's house. And I'm going to prepare a place for you because I want you to be with me. And I'm actually going to come back and get you. And you know the way to where I'm going. And so his disciples are hearing this. They're not quite tracking with him. And then all of a sudden in verse 5, Thomas, one of the disciples, speaks up and he goes, Hey, Lord, we don't know where you're going. (laughs) And we don't know the way. Thomas is going, Hey, we don't know what you're talking about. We finally believe you that there's, gonna, there's a coming suffering here, and we have no idea what you're talking about when you speak of the Father's house. And then Jesus comes back around in verse 6, and if you've had time in church, you're probably familiar with this verse. Jesus responds to Thomas, and he says this, no, you do know the way. I am the way. I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one's going to come to the Father except through me, right? And a lot of times we hear this verse mentioned, and it's used to teach about the exclusivity of Jesus, That there is no such thing as universalism. There's not many pathways to God. Especially if you're going to believe in Jesus, there's no many pathways to God. He's going to say there's actually only one way to God. There's only one way to salvation. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He narrows the road, right? And what's interesting, though, about this verse, especially in our Protestant evangelical circles, this verse has been taught a lot in that way. And so when it comes to the first part of the verse about Jesus being way, truth, and life, we can quote that. We know it. But when it comes to the second half of the verse, where he says, no one comes to the Father, that's actually part of the verse that at best, we've acknowledged it because we know it's there, we finished the quotation, or I would actually say at worst, we've, we've left it and we've neglected it because we just emphasized the first half. And so what's happened, what's going on with what Jesus is trying to show us in the Father is we've actually stolen from something from God the Father for all of our emphasis on Jesus. Now, now track with this, hang with me, we're getting somewhere. That's not to say that God the Son and God the Father are in a competition together, or that one is greater than the other. But it is to say that Jesus is trying to offer us, he's trying to get us to some place with the Father that you and I, in our own faith, we tend to neglect. Because we just focus on Jesus, which is good, right? But our God is triune. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is trying to offer us something in God the Father. Maybe to say it a different way. The whole mission of Jesus, just consider this for a second, especially if you're someone in the room who does have some father wounds. The whole mission of Jesus, the whole reason he came, was to place you squarely in front of the Father. Just to place you there. No strings attached, nothing to be afraid of, securely and safely in front of the Father. It's not as though with Jesus that we don't know what we're gonna get with the Father, so he's like this messianic buffer. We'll hide behind him because the Father really loves Jesus but only merely tolerates us. No, 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 that's not what's happening. Jesus is saying, no, you've missed the heart of where I'm trying to get you. I've come. I'm the way, truth, and the life, and I'm trying to get you to the Father, right? I'm getting you to the Father. Jesus came to chase us down to bring us there. Maybe one more way, right? Like if you're a Christian, your salvation didn't start in the soft, compassionate heart of Jesus. That's not where your salvation started. If you're a Christian, your salvation started in the motivation and the heart of the Father. He planned it, he thought about it, he strategized for it. He's the one who sent his son to accomplish it. It starts in the heart of the Father. So so this conversation with Jesus and his disciples, it keeps going in verse eight. Look at what happens. 
So his disciples are tracking with him, and then all of a sudden Philip speaks up and he says, okay, well, if, if the Father's the point, if you're trying to get us to the Father, notice verse 8, well, then show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us, right? Just show us the Father, Jesus. Like, can you do some sort of manifestation of the Father, and that'll be plenty for us. But then Jesus responds, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What are you talking about? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So believe in me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. And if that's hard to believe, notice what he says, at least believe on account of the works. You've seen some crazy stuff. Like this is the Father's work in the world. And so Philip is tracking with this conversation. Okay, I get it. You're trying to show us the Father Well, then show us the Father. (laughs) And then Jesus comes back in verse 9 with this epic bomb. He says, if you've seen me, like if you've taken notice of me, if you've seen the texture of my life, if you've heard the sound of my voice, if you've seen who I'm hanging out with, if you've seen how I'm spending my time, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. So this quote from Jesus, what he just said in verse 9 is exactly why the Jews wanted him dead in his day. Because for them, this was blasphemy. He, he's putting himself on par with God, and Jesus would say, no, 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 I'm not like saying I'm like God, I am God, right? Jesus would say, let me solve that argument for you. But what he is saying is that his identity and action are so united to the Father that in Jesus, we actually get to know the heart of the Father. So there's a quote from a book that has been helpful here. Thomas Smale, Scottish theologian, he says this, The words and works of Jesus are the normative expression not only of his own person and his own nature, but also of the action, person, and nature of the Father. And so what we just read here in verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The basic conviction, the claim of Jesus is that his word is the word of God and that his action is the action of God because ultimately his being is identical with the being of God. It's a big thought that'll blow your mind. But this is the testimony of the entire New Testament. So just to give you some rapid fire verses, John chapter one, verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God, or the Son of God, the only Son of God, is what he's talking about. No one has ever seen God, but the only Son of God who is at the Father's side, or better translated, who is close to the Father's heart. So the only Son of God has actually made him known. And then it goes on in Colossians 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image. He's the icon. He's the representation. He's the explanation of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance, the blazing center of the glory of God. Notice, he's the exact imprint. He's the DNA of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so I'm going to links here to to kind of unfold that when we see Jesus, we see the Father because this dismantles, if you're tracking with this, it dismantles this thing we come up with at times where Jesus is the good cop to the Old Testament bad cop. That Jesus is somehow the Dr. Jekyll to the Father's Mr. Hyde, right? And that's actually not what's happening at all. What's happening in Jesus is that the Father is so pleased that we get the full revelation of who the Father has been from the very first pages of Scripture. 
Like this is who the Father has all. It's not like the Father was like angry in the Old Testament and then got some therapy in those 400 years between then and the New Testament and got on some medication and then showed up nice in the New Testament. No, this is who he's always been, and Jesus shows us the heart of the Father, right? And so this answers the first question. What is Jesus trying to show us about the Father? He's trying to show us his heart. He's trying to show us what he's like. He's trying to show us a bit of the substance and texture of God, your Father. And so this gets us to the second question. So what does this mean for us? Real practically, if that's some theological work, if that gives us knowledge of God, what does this mean for ourselves? Here's, we'll move pretty quickly. What we see in Jesus of the heart of the Father, I've got five things and we'll be done. The first is this. The Father wants you. The Father wants you. Like, I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what your experience with an earthly father has been like, but hear what scripture suggests. Maybe the most famous passage in all the Bible. For God so loved the world. For God was so motivated out of the overflow of love that he got up off his chair, he got up off the couch to do something about it. He sent his son. For God so loved the world, he sent his son into the world. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This verse is the heart of the Father's adoption. So, so your faith, Christian, your faith isn't random. <laughs> I love this. Like, God the Father isn't begrudgingly saving people. So it's not like, well, that, that guy confessed Jesus as Lord. I made a whole deal that if you ever do that, i got to save you. So I guess I'm going to go ahead and save that guy. That's not how it works. Like, the Father's not begrudgingly saving. He so loved the world. So, so um... I don't know if you've ever like thought, hey, what does God think about me? I've ever had that thought. Like, I know I, th I think about this at times. Like, what does God, when he thinks about me, what comes to his mind? And there's times where like, I have a view of myself that the answer I come back with isn't always the most encouraging or positive answer. And even if I do come back with an encouraging or positive answer, it's only like, I hope that's true. It's not so much that I have some authoritative grounding that but here's the thing, if you've ever thought that way, like we actually don't have to wonder what God thinks of us. That's actually been addressed in Jesus. So here's what I mean. Who does Jesus tend to hang out with? It's not always the put together people. And how does he hang out with him? Like what tone of voice does he use? Have you noticed that like he's actually the one pursuing them? He's actually the one interested in their story. Like, this is the heart of, this is what the Father thinks. You know, I don't have to create a wish dream of what we hope the Father thinks of us. That's actually already been addressed in Jesus. He wants you. He wants you. The Father is interested in you. Here's the second thing to keep moving. The Father is kind and generous. The Father is kind and generous. Listen to Jesus explain his Father's heart. Luke 12 he says, hey, don't be afraid, little flock. I love the language here, the endear this endearing term. Hey, don't be afraid, little flock. He says, why? Because it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This means that the father is not holding out on you. I don't know if you've ever felt that way in your own life with God, that somehow he's, he's keeping things back. He's not withholding from you. The father, the father isn't trying to just share enough with you to say, well, at least I gave you something. Like, that's not the father. He, he's generous, right? He's generous. He says, it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom, which means the very best of the father is shared with us through Jesus. 
That doesn't mean he gives us everything we want. He's not an indulgent father. He's not that way. But it does mean this, that God the Father isn't standing in heaven with his arms folded and he's stingy. He's not a cheap father. He's generous. And consider that Jesus just said, I want you to know that he takes up good pleasure over you. The Father takes up good pleasure. This just means that the Father's patient with you. Like some of you would do well to be more patient with yourself because God the Father sure is. He takes up good pleasure over you. He's not insecure that he has to use a certain tone with you lest he fears you don't listen to him. He's eager to help. He takes up good pleasure, right? Hey, let's keep moving. Hey, number three, this one's really important. The Father initiates. The Father initiates. Here's why this one's really important. Some of you might have experiences with fathers or father figures or authoritarian people in your life, and they're waiting for you to initiate relationship with them. Like they're the ones waiting for you to take the first step. And let me just suggest, that's not this father. Like think about the Bible, right? The Bible is not this story of a a passionate people pursuing an unresponsive God. The Bible is actually a story is exactly the opposite, right? A passionate God pursuing some unresponsive kids. And so to put it another way about God's security, he's not insecure. Listen, he's not insecure. The Father is not waiting to see how you feel about him before he decides how he feels about you. He initiates. 1 John chapter 4. In this is love. If you want to know what love is, it's here. It's not that we loved God. We didn't start this mess. Like, we didn't create this whole thing. Salvation, it's not that we loved God, because we didn't. But he initiates. He loves us. He sent his son. He goes first. He sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's go to number four. The father is committed to his word. The father is is committed to his word. Hey, listen, everybody in this room has been lied to. Everybody in this room has been let down and and forced to pick up the pieces of broken promises. Everybody. Everybody. But listen to the words of Jesus. In John 14, Jesus says, hey, peace I give to you. Just let, let your imagination go there for a minute. That Jesus, who reveals the heart of the Father, peace I give to you, my peace I give. How many of you have left the presence of your earthly fathers and the thing you're experiencing is peace? But Jesus is saying, this is the heart of my Father, your Father. And then he says this, I'm committed to my word, just so you know it. I don't give like the world gives, as if to take back. (laughs) So peace I give, and I'm not given as if to take back. So don't let your heart be troubled and don't be afraid. I love that verse. And then Joshua 21, 45, just to show you, this is who God's always been from the Old Testament. Not one word of all the good promises the Lord God had made to the house of Israel failed. Not one of them, all of them came to pass. He's committed to his word. So I've got four kids at home. And uh, my, my seven-year-old daughter, Scarlett, she's got this book that she loves to read. And uh, she's like asked me to swear to her, promise to her that I'll read it every night before we go to bed. And... Um, and so the other night, she like, two, there's a two-hour span between dinner time and, and bedtime. So like 6 to 8.30, right? 
The other night, four different times in that two-hour span, she made me promise that we're going to read this book, right? And I eventually started to get a little bit frustrated, like, hey, we're going to read the book, right? But in that moment, like, the Spirit just pierced my heart around this and reminded me, like, the Father is never annoyed. Your Father is never bothered when you hold him to his word. Your Father is never annoyed when you remind him he's committed to it. He's bound himself to it. He's never annoyed. This father never fails. He always pays attention. He's always there, especially when you need him, and he's never late. He's committed to his word. Hey, here's the last one tonight, and we'll be done. The father is holy. The father is holy. So what's interesting about me naming this last is it's actually the holiness of the Father that like supports everything else and gives all of it meaning. Like everything we've talked about tonight is good and wonderful, but it all has authority because of the holiness of God. So if you and I were to do a survey of the whole Bible, the thing that all of Scripture wants us to know is that God is holy. So that means that he's perfect in all of his ways. There's no darkness in God. There's no darkness in him. That his, his judgments are perfect. He's morally perfect. There's no shift or change in his character. He's perfectly steady. He's always faithful. Maybe translate it this way. The father never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. He's holy. He's holy. And so the father's holiness is at the core of everything of who he is. So you think about his love. His love is amazing, right? But it's holy love. His goodness is holy goodness. It's altogether different. It's totally perfect. There's no darkness in it. His power is holy power. And this is why the mission of Jesus is so beautiful because isn't this the kind of father we need? Isn't this the kind of father we're clamoring for and our souls beg for, right? Someone who can steady us, someone who, whose word actually matters, someone who, whose word actually means something, who can bring order to our chaos. But the only way to bridge the gap between his holiness and our sinfulness, someone's got to stand in, like someone's got to do something because we've railed on his holiness. And so what we need is someone who could come to us, translate God's holiness, not compromise it, translate it to us, help us see the perfections of God, and at the same time, someone who could stand in, who could answer for, atone for the way we have rebelled against his authority. We need someone to do this. This is the father we need. This is what Jesus does. This is why he's so beautiful. Jesus comes. He doesn't diminish the Father's holiness. He doesn't say, well, the Father is not that holy, so therefore your sinfulness doesn't really matter that much. He doesn't diminish the Father's holiness to excuse our sinfulness. And at the same time, Jesus doesn't so hold up the holiness of the Father that the only answer is judge these sinners. Here's what Jesus does. He doesn't compromise on either, and he stands in our place to take judgment on his head so that at the cross of Jesus, track with this, at the cross of Jesus, we see the gravity of God the Father. He's serious. He's a father to be revered. But at the same time at the cross, we see the depth of his love and just how far he'll go to get his kids home. At the cross, we see both. He's not so heavy that he has no love, and he's not so loving that his heaviness is pushed to the side. Gravity and depth of love come together. This is why Jesus says to pull us back into John 14, no one comes to the Father. He's holy. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the way, the truth, and the life, but he's getting us to the Father. So here's the landing. This holy Father, he wants you. The Father wants you. This holy Father is kind and generous. That's who he is. This holy Father, he initiates with you. Like he's not asking for you to take the first step. That's that's what he's always done. The prodigal son reveals this. The father's looking on the horizon line and he runs to his son. The father initiates. And this holy father, he's committed to his word, which means he's not unhinged. He really can be trusted. He really can be trusted. So if you're a Christian here tonight, I want to encourage you to reach for the communion offering. I think it's under your chair. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I um, would encourage you to abstain from this moment. It's, it's not because we don't want you to participate with us. It's, um, it's because this moment is actually a meal where we, we say Jesus is my Lord, right? So we actually invite you to Jesus. But if you are a follower of Jesus... the appropriate response to God's word (laughs) is to always come to God's table. Like, that's always the appropriate response. And so when we come to this bread tonight, I want you to think about Romans chapter 8 in light of all we've talked about. Romans 8 says this, if the father didn't spare his son, and he didn't, if the father didn't spare his son but gave him up for all of us, then how much more along with him will he graciously give us all things? And so the night that Jesus instituted this meal with his followers, he took the bread, he broke it, and he says, this is my body that's broken for you. And here's what Jesus is saying before you take and eat. Don't let your familiarity rob this from you. Your sins are forgiven.